This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Celia Evans and Craig White, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 491 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new movie Dune, directed by Denis Villeneuve. And this will include spoilers for everything in the movie, so just be aware of that. And we previously discussed the Dune books and movies back in episodes 417 and 432. So definitely check those out if you missed them. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Andrea Kale, making her 22nd appearance on the show. She's a graduate of the Odyssey Writers Workshop, and her short fiction appears in the Writers of the Future anthology, Fantasy Magazine, and Lightspeed. She's been a television writer, producer, and script supervisor for shows such as Late Night with Conan O'Brien, The Chew, and WWE's Monday Night Raw and Friday Night SmackDown. And she's currently shopping her reality show, The Night. So, Andrea, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. The next up, we've got Matthew Kressel, also making his 22nd appearance on the show. He's the author of the novel King of Shards, and his short story, Now We Paint Worlds, was just published on Tor.com. His second novel, Queen of Static, is available now on his Patreon page over at patreon.com slash mattkressel. So, Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Good to be here. And also joining us today is Rajan Khanna, making his 19th appearance on the show. He's the author of the post-apocalyptic novels Falling Sky, Rising Tide, and Raining Fire. And his short fiction appears in magazines such as Analog, Lightspeed, and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. His articles have appeared on Tor.com and LitReactor.com. So Raj, welcome to the show. Always good to be back. Thanks. Okay, so let's start off with Andrea and have you tell us about your expectations going into Dune. Um, my expectations were very, very high for this. I've been looking forward to this since the announcement that he was making it, um, especially after how magnificent um, Blade Runner 2049 was. And uh, honestly, it lived up to every single one of my expectations. It was um, it's one of those movies I went to, we went to, I went to see it in IMAX and just sat there transfixed for the whole movie. Um, and, uh, it, it, it was, it was exactly what I was hoping for, um, in, in a, in a adaptation of this book, you know, one of my favorite books of all time. All right. Well, you got a little ahead of us there. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. That's all we need to That's say. That's it. Done. Yeah, we're done. We're yeah, done. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, any final, th- no, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah. so, um, but yeah, so definitely expectations high going into this movie because, as you mentioned, the director, Denis Villeneuve, very, very amazing director with a, like his last couple of movies have been Sicario, Arrival, and Blade Runner 2049, like three of the best movies of recent years, definitely. Um, so yeah, like director seems great. Um, and uh, you mentioned that you've been waiting to see this for a very long time, yeah. which is definitely true. Because this movie was originally supposed to come out in uh, November, 
Wait, December, yeah, November, I think. November 20th, December. 2020. And then, no, then, then they pushed it back to December. Right, right. Then they pushed it back to December <laughs> 2021. So, so we had, you know, the, uh, the four of us, we all read the book and we discussed the, um, the David Lynch 1984 Dune movie and the documentary Jodorowsky's Dune in, in anticipation that we would be discussing this movie a few months later. And so it's now been like 18 months since we mm -hmm. read the book. So. Uh, I don't know. Hopefully other people remember it better than I do. I'm, I'm sort of some of the details are starting to fade. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's some of the stuff. So how about, uh, how, how about Matt? Expectations going into this uh, movie? Uh, my expectations were also very high. Um, yeah, so so Denis Villeneuve, um, he, he's made some of uh, my uh, favorite films in recent memory, obviously Blade Runner 2049, Arrival, Sicario, etc., and so I was just super excited um, about this. Definitely nervous because um, obviously uh, prior filmmakers with Dune have had mixed <laughs> success. Um, and I was concerned about um, the scope of it because, the, you know, the thing about Dune, the book, is that there's so much nuance and detail um, in the plot. And I'm like, how are they going to do this in a film and not stop and just do info dumps? Um, but somehow they, they made it work. Um, and, and, uh, I, I was just, I was just astounded. I, I, I thought this was an incredible movie like Andrea, you know, I saw it in IMAX. I actually saw it last night. Um, and just, was just my jaw dropped, you know, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going to the bathroom. I don't care if, <laughs> if my bladder explodes, I'm sitting here the whole thing, the whole time. So yeah, it was good. Yeah. Well, I mean, cause yeah, like I said, we watched, we all watched the, the 1984 movie, which is not good. And <laughs> it really makes you think that Dune cannot be adapted for film because, uh, you know, it has like half the movie is voiceovers to try to explain all the exposition and it still ends up being pretty much incoherent. Mm -hmm. And and so you're kind of left with the impression of like, oh, yeah, this is a really hard book to adapt. And one thing that's so striking to me about this movie is how it makes it seem easy. You know, you watch this this new movie, Dune, mm -hmm. and it doesn't seem you're like, oh, yeah, like this all makes sense. You know, it all the pacing is good. Like it. uh, Yeah, it, it's really sort of a, a master class in. Mm -hmm. taking a difficult to adapt a sort of notoriously difficult to adapt book and you know uh and making it seem easy like i said yeah um uh, but so raj what were your thoughts or what were your expectations uh, for this movie so i think i'm going to be the outlier in this in this discussion because um you know i i had low expectations going into this not because of him but just because i tend to have low expectations when it comes to any kind of film adaptation of a book, especially a book that I love because I find that it's easier that way. Um, <laughs> I expected that it would look phenomenal because, uh, you know, based on his previous work, he's, you know, great at putting together images and making everything look impressive. And that was my main expectation. Um, but, and while, so I guess you know, everyone's mentioned his previous films. I like his films, but his films have never blown me away. Um, again, probably I'm in the mi minority on that. And so again, I wasn't really sure how this would come about. But I'm also, I I'll also say I'm not a, the target audience for this uh, film, because even though I love Dune as a novel, 
I don't really film adaptations to me are are not always or mostly not necessary to me. I mean, because I have a book that I can read and that book has certain things and a film adaptation for me is always going to be an exercise in like, oh, they changed that. And oh, interesting how they handled this. And sometimes it can be amazing, but I never, I'm not one of the people who is like, oh God, I really hope they remake Dune as a movie and make it really good. Um, So that you know, comes into play in terms of my expectations and that like, I, if this was a terrible movie, I would have been disappointed, but I wouldn't have felt like betrayed in any way or that, you know, it ruined my one chance at, at having a good Dune adaptation. Yeah. And I'll say like, I, you know, as I mentioned in our previous panels, I only read Dune once I read it for our panel. So I don't have a huge investment in, you know, in the movie being any particular thing. Like, it's not like I have like all these childhood memories and it has to live up to that or anything like that. So I'm probably an easier uh, audience for this movie. I guess the other thing I'll say is that there was all this sort of drama with this movie because uh, it was announced at one point that it was going to just be released on HBO Max, the streaming service, and not in theaters because of the pandemic. And uh, the director, Denis Villeneuve, came out and was really, really upset about that because he said that it was not going to make enough money because because this is I guess we should explain this is covers the first half of the first book. And so it says, you know, at the very beginning in the opening credits, Dune part one, part one and yeah. it and it is definitely not uh, it doesn't it definitely doesn't wrap up the story. You know, <laughs> it, it, it's definitely the first half of, of a two part story. And so he was he was really upset because he was like, if it, if it goes straight to HBO Max, there's not going to be a part two and it's just going to be this you know, perpetually unfinished story. Mm. Um, so just the way and and things and and as we're recording this, they've already said that it's been green lighted for part two. It's it's done really well at the box office, you know, or at least for given the pandemic and everything. Um, so that's that's really really great. Well, for for what it's worth, I, I I saw it last night in IMAX theater in Manhattan, and this is what a week since it's been out, and it was pretty much full. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, this is you know sort of mid hopefully late pandemic uh and you have a full theater um i think that's a good sign for for the film yeah i agree i was i went in the middle of the day on a thursday and while it wasn't full full it sure there were sure were a lot of people um mm-hmm. especially you know i got my favorite seats right in the in the middle and uh we we were surrounded <laughs> by people um so i uh, it really, I'm I'm so happy to see that. Well, I'm annoyed at having to sit next to people again. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Well, but but well, it, I was glad to see it because I want this movie to succeed. Yeah, absolutely. But it's interesting you say that because, you know, I have HBO Max, so I didn't have to go to the theater to see this. I could have watched mm-hmm. it at home. And I really had a very serious debate about whether to just watch it at home because I've just had so many movies completely ruined, yeah. just completely ruined by somebody talking behind me or somebody Mm. on the fucking phone in front of me or whatever. And so I was like, do I want, you know, and I've waited so long to see this movie. Do I want to have it take the risk of it just being the experience, just being completely spoiled if I go to the theater and and somebody in the audience ruins the movie for me. But, but everyone was just like, no, you have to see it in the theater. You have to see it in the theater. And so, so I, you know, sort of bit the bullet and, and went and saw it in the theater. And fortunately nobody talked or anything. It was, that was really good. The, bad experience I did have was that it, we got up to the part where uh, the knife fight at the end between Jamis and Paul is just about to start and the screen just goes dark. <gasps> oh. oh no. 
<laughs> and and so we're just like, um, what's going on? And and some I could, some guy next to me was like, we can just watch it on HBO Max, and just storms out. And <laughs> and so we and, and so and so we waited, you know, like you know, people go out to tell them and everything, and we waited like fifteen minutes. Oh. And then um, and a woman comes in and says, we're very sorry, like all these theaters in this like row have all gone off whatever we're trying to get it fixed here's like free tickets for another movie and some guys like there's still 30 minutes left to go and she's like i know i know i know like we're getting it fixed you know and then we wait like another you know 10 minutes or something so it's been like almost half an hour we've been sitting there and then they like started up but it's like back to where um duncan idaho dies and so we had to watch all that again you know and then and you get up to the knife fight and then it's like the movie's over like five minutes later you know (laughs) oh Um, god so so i anything i say about the end of the movie you have to keep in mind that's that that was what my experience was (laughs) Um, i have to i'm i'm so sorry that is just awful You had a spice experience. You saw the future and then you right. went yeah, back yeah. and <laughs> experienced it. But it was definitely, I'm definitely still, even grant, even uh, with all that, I'm still glad I saw it in the theater because yeah. like, like I think Andrea said, I was just, and I had the same experience with Blade Runner 2049 too, where I was just like sitting there in awe. I was just like, I cannot believe what's happening to my eyes right now. Yeah. It's just like, so, um, but it's interesting what you say, Raj, that, you know, that you're in the minority because like at least with Blade Runner 2049, I don't know if you are in the minority. I mean, I, I, I thought it was amazing, but I like so many people thought it was like too slow or too long or, or too artsy or, or something. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's it's definitely not like every, you know, like Denis, uh, Denis Villeneuve does have his detractors, you know, and, and, yeah, and I, also another thing was that this movie was um, only 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. And so mm-hmm. I was like, okay, it's probably good, but not like mind blowing. So I, I, I can't believe it's only 83%. Like, you know, am I going to go see this or flight of the navigator, which is 84% <laughs> like, but, but sorry, go, but sorry, go, go ahead, rush. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I interrogated my feelings about this movie a lot because I saw it opening weekend and then I watched it again last night because I thought, let me, you know, on HBO max, let me see, if anything has changed for me. Um, and I could probably talk about that because it matches sort of in some ways my feelings about his previous uh, films, but I didn't want to jump ahead or anything like that. So, I mean, I can talk about it a little later. Because <laughs> Dave will slap you on the wrist. <laughs> right. You're speaking out of turn. Um, but I mean, I, I feel like every, anyone listening, listening to this knows what Dune is and Hopefully they listened to our previous panel, so I'm not going to like summarize the whole sure. world or anything. But um, but yeah, I do just want to talk about this as an adaptation of of the story. So um, I guess Raj, you were saying that you know it's hard for you to watch these adaptations without just being like, oh, they changed this, they didn't change that. So what did you think about about that? Like, were there th- any did anything? Because I th- I thought this was pretty um faithful to the book. I mean, yeah. Um, but what did you think overall of what they so, changed so- or didn't? I, I, I thought it was a good movie. Um, I, I think for me, and, and this is what I was, I guess, touching on before, is that it somehow, to me, felt sterile. Um, you know, everything was beautiful. The set design was amazing. The costumes were amazing. The visuals were amazing. The actors were great. But, like, there was some kind of sterility to it that uh, there was a distance where it never quite, you know, 
penetrated as much as I guess I had hoped Never, it would. It did penetrate your shields. Yeah. It wasn't quite the slow blade. Um, oh, and wow. so, <laughs> um, but that's what, you know, that was kind of my reaction to his other movies. You know, the, the beautiful, the plot was fine. It was just like something I, I didn't have an emotional reaction or connection to, to, to any of them. Um, but in terms of the adaptation, I thought it was, good but my biggest disappointment in the adaptation and i i know that it's really difficult to pack so much of that world into even two movies um was that a lot of the weird stuff got skipped and a lot of the stuff you know about the mentats and dr ua and his whole conditioning and and you know more in depth on the bene Gesserit and kwisatz haderach and all these other things sort of had to you know guild navigators they they sort of had to have you know they were minimized and and i read mm. that so much more was filmed um and then cut and for example the banquet scene which is one of my favorite <gasps> scenes oh the yes. they had a banquet scene yeah oh. so so all that stuff that i actually you know some of my favorite parts and just yeah. you know I don't know that he needed to mention the Butlerian Jihad in this movie, but it, to, to me, knowing that background helps inform what's going on in the society. And so that stuff being kind of given, you know, minimal exposure in this film, I think was a disappointment to me because I think but, one of the great things about the novel is the weird stuff yeah. that he comes up with. But, but I mean, Raj, is there anything in the movie that you think they could have like, like obviously they can't get rid of like the Gom Jabbar, the no, like that seems crawler, sandworm, like, like all, like it seems like everything like, like, is yeah. it just like, do, do you and, think that the movie should have just been longer or do you think there's anything they could have cut and replaced with something I mean, else? I mean, I, here's the thing. Like I would, when I watched it the second time, I was like, wow, this, you know, establishing shot is really long. They probably could have cut this, but you know, that's, that's a key element of the mood of this movie from him, you know, like, for, or, or for example, the bullfighting aspect, right? Like that, you know, I wouldn't have put that in i wouldn't have shown you know maybe shown the head maybe mentioned that the grandfather died but like you know you see that that little statue which reminded me of the origami in blade runner um yes it did. Uh, yeah. yeah um but you see that statue you see the head you they talk about it quite a bit so clearly that imagery was more important to him and it is kind of ominous and you do you know you feel like the bull is coming for them mm-hmm. um so he ch- i think he chose the things he wanted to to focus on um yeah. And, and I mean, there, there are things that were out of sequence from the novel that I noticed. And I mm. wondered why that was. But then I think part of it was because this is sort of part one, you know, you, you know, you have to kind of have Gertie, I'm not Gertie Halleck, Duncan Idaho's appearance doesn't come until much later in the book. But, you know, why not bring that forward and have that all resolved in this first movie and give it, give his, him an arc, complete arc, rather than putting that off for the second yeah. movie? That makes sense to me. Um, but yeah, there were, there were a few things that I think were changed that didn't really alter anything in the story. Um, but I, I, I think my biggest disappointment was just some of the weirdness got squeezed out. And, and that, again, that's well, just well, me loving the book. So I mean, t- t- to that point, you know, I, I think one of the, the, pa- the strengths of this film is that I, I think that weirdness is there. I just think it's just in the background. And I think um, if I came to this with no knowledge whatsoever, it would just get me so interested in finding out more about this world. 
right? Because you want to know everything. You're like, wait a minute, who are those people in the masks? And, and uh, you know, who are the Sardaukar and the white suits coming down? And, and why does the, the, the Baron want to take over this world? And we never actually saw the, the, the Padishai Emperor. And like, mm-hmm. um, in, in my mind, it, it just, it created that sense of, of, of awe, that sense of wonder. And, you know, I know all that stuff from having read the books, but, um, uh, you know, I, my, my wife who hasn't read, uh, the book, um, I asked her, I said, was it hard to follow? And she said, no, she said, I actually followed it pretty closely. She said, but there were, you know, I wondered about certain things that weren't, um, that weren't, uh, you know, explained. And, uh, yeah. So I, I, I mean, I think that they, they just didn't have time to do all that stuff. Yeah. And I think if they, if they did, it would have been, you know, a 10 hour movie and it just, it wouldn't have worked dramatically. Yeah. Um, and, and we were, you know, my wife and I were talking last night uh, after the film and, and we both said, you know, this would have made an amazing uh, TV show. Yeah. Like, right. Game of Thrones budget. Um, yeah. You know, having and building out these characters and building out the weirdness. Like you could spend a whole episode just talking about the Bene Gesser and how they're manipulating bloodlines. And then you could have a whole episode about the, uh, the guild navigators and why they need the spice. And, and, you know, the thing about Dune is like just on a single page, like we were talking about the banquet on a single page, there's so much subtext. Yes. And, nor- and, and, to do that in a film and to keep the narrative moving and to keep the story moving is so hard, is yes. so difficult. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they were able to pack all of this in in two and a half hours, I just thought it was amazing. And and yes, they had to throw some things away. I want to see all those scenes. I want to see what what they cut away. I want I want like the four hour director's cut or something. Yeah, yeah I do yeah, too. Absolutely. And I hope that yeah. I hope that comes out um, yeah. because yeah, I noticed a lot of the things that were cut. I kind of expected it. Um, you cannot pack that whole first section into a two hour movie or two and a half, clearly. And, you know, when you're adapting a book, you have to make choices. You have to make choices because it has to be a certain length and you have to make choices because you need to uh, tell a, uh, you need to tell a story in the space you have. You need to set up that structure and you need to hit your points, your, your plot points. And because of that, you have to hit, you have to make choices. And he made choices that I knew that I assumed he was going to make. And I accepted it because I wanted to see the banquet scene too. I wanted Mm -hmm. to see, I wanted to see the scene where Jessica goes into the room that has all the plants. And then she finds the, the, um, the message on the bottom of the plant from the other Bene Gesserit. Um, but I knew it wasn't going to happen and I accept that, but yes, a hundred percent, this would have, this was the kind of book that should have been given the game of Thrones treatment so that you can get all that nuance. Um, you know, I love the appearance of the, of the space, the spacing guild coming down for the, the, the change. Uh, cause you know, those, yeah. those, those outfit, the costumes were like clerical robes. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I just, I, thought that was fantastic yeah and um, also like the the ramp it has like this sort of oriental style rug on yeah. it and just like the juxtaposition of that kind of rug on a spaceship i thought was just such yeah. a striking image yeah it, it, he just he does such an amazing job with visuals and evoking emotion and and uh interest by what he's showing you um yes i wish i all that stuff had been in there but it tells the story he wants to tell and it tells the story 
we need to know in order to advance uh, into the second part. And, you know. Well, one thing I wanted to just say, just to, with, to Raj's point about it feeling a little, um, what did you say, Raj? Uh, uh, Sterile. Sterile. Um, is, is that I think one of the things I noticed about his films is that there usually isn't a lot of humor. Yeah. And, and I, I felt like it was, you know, it was in the trailer where like Duncan's like, Oh, did you put on some muscle? And then he's like, I did, you know, Paul's like, he's like, no, you know, and that was funny. And that was like a nice little moment of comic relief, but jokes like that are really rare in the film. And well, there's two, right. Right. I mean, there's that one. And then there's, um, Guido says to, uh, Gurney Hollick smile. And he says, I am smiling. I am smiling. (laughs) And there's also the, how how do you shower or something like that in this place? Oh, you rub sand in your ass. Yeah. And Um, and also the, the part of the beginning where Jessica says, you know, use the voice and he's like, mom, I, I, mom, I just woke up. I just woke up. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But I, I think like, as the film goes on, the, 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 the jokes, you know, there, there aren't many, I mean, it's, it's a very serious film. And, and I, and I think that, um, a lot of, science fiction films specifically like action films lately have kind of been a lot of them have been tongue-in-cheek you know like the guardians of the galaxy stuff like that or some of the marvel films like there's always like that that running kind of tongue-in-cheek kind of thing going through it and um this one this film is very serious so i i think like i could see to your point that it 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 could be taken as as sterile because there's not a lot of levity throughout but but i I mean mean yeah. One thing we talked about about the book, though, is there's essentially zero jokes in the right. 700 page yes. novel. Yes. And and so I just I, and I also feel like some of that sterility might actually be from the the landscape because I think yeah. as a director he's so good at juxtaposing. You know, we we see Caladan at the beginning, like the constant rain shots, mm-hmm. and and and. Um, you know, Paul sticking his hand in the, in the water right before he leaves for the desert planet. And then, you know, nothing but just endless sprawling desert, which I thought like, I thought I had seen like, oh, just another desert scene. But like somehow they made this desert new and original and just terrifying. Yeah. Um, and, and I was not expecting it to be that striking. And I, and I think that might be part of the sterility. And, and it's also beautiful. Like the desert yeah, is yeah. is terrifying uh and deadly but also beautiful as you know as the bull is terrifying but beautiful um uh, the thing i also noticed was that um there even though we're on caladan which is a green planet there is there's a um a corresponding lack of color in it. There's mm-hmm. never any sunshine. You don't, the the ocean isn't really that blue. He kind of makes it visually similar to Dune, but just with water, um, which I found really interesting because I, I expected it to be the other way, a complete juxtaposition of blue uh, water planet with completely, you know, tan, right. colorless beige desert but but the whole movie it's a sort of brooding sinister mood yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. and and one thing we talked about with the 84 movie was that paul doesn't you know that paul is supposed to have this sort of um like what's the word sort of you know there's the sense sense of doom about it you know that he's this sort of doomed haunted person that's really totally absent from the the 84 Mm -hmm. movie and i thought this did that really well where like you know you you just 
he, I don't know, he, to me, he, he seems a lot more, first of all, he seems a lot more relatable mm -hmm. and a lot more of an active character, but then it also definitely gets into this sense of like, you don't know if this guy's going to have his, this guy's story is going to have a happy ending. Like yeah. that, that yeah. sort of sets that up right. Well, I, I think they, they, they correctly understood Paul's character because I think that, um, some people misinterpret Paul as the hero and yeah. right. So he's like the anti-hero. Right. Like he just, he has this, this great burden and, and he realizes that if he, if he, if he takes, you know, if he takes this path, you know, billions of people will die across the universe and, and it's just, he's horrified by it. And, and I, I thought that really came through strongly in this. Yeah. They, and, and I think that's a lot of um, Timothy Chalamet's, performance i i thought he was just magnificent as paul um yeah. you know he, paul's supposed to be a 16 year old and physically they made him look like a 16 year old like really you know skinny has not filled out um but they gave him that gravitas that the 84 movie did not have mm -hmm. he was you know this wide-eyed kid or <laughs> or wide-eyed um he he looked so much older because that that actor was. Although Timothy Chalamet is like what twenty four, they I believe I believe that he was a sixteen year old kid. Yeah, yeah. You know, a yeah. sixteen year old kid with with a serious kid who understands the gravity of what is about to happen because he has this prescience, but also because he was raised to be the son of a duke who would eventually take over. But I, I want to touch too on, on on Raj saying that, that for him the movie was sort of cold and sterile and cerebral, and that's something that people have said about um, Denis Villeneuve's other films, and something yeah. people say about Christopher Nolan's films, and and so on. Um, but like I don't know, I would like like fifteen minutes into the movie when Leto is talking to Paul about you know how you'll always be my son and we're going yeah. into danger and stuff. I was like already crying. Yeah, like that was you know. incredibly uh, moving mm -hmm. that scene. So, so I definitely didn't experience the movie. I was, and I had such an emotional reaction to the movie, which I, I attribute a lot of, I mean, yeah, to the great performances and writing and everything, but also like the, the score or the, the sound. Oh, that was fantastic. Oh, yeah. design God, it was like so, was so unsettling. And it just had, I had just such a like physiological reaction to the, to the, yeah. to the sound design. I think what he does too, cause I was uh, very conscious of this is the architecture. Um, and the yes. music went so well together. The architecture I kind of sort of describe as Egyptian brutalist. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. and the music also hits this, Egyptian brutalist too. There's there's the sounds of the desert and 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 you know the the ululations uh, of women and the the sounds of Eastern music, kind of juxtaposed or mixed in together with this spare um, sounds and you know the what I can say as a brutalist sound to it. Um, yeah. It, it was just it the, the melding of those two things, the visuals and the and the and the sound was just unparalleled. I believe, I believe Hans Zimmer um, invented or had people invent new instruments for this, oh. if, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> I read somewhere that he just yeah he said he said to someone, "I want this to sound like the desert. <laughs> or, I want this to sound like sand." And then um, yeah, it it there was I have to look it up. I wish I had read it right before this, but I I read something a few weeks ago that he was um yeah trying to create new sounds and new unsettling sounds and uh it, it was super effective i think it was so effective that um 
like I knew the music was great, but I was so invested in the story that I wasn't paying like super close attention to the music. So I just want to go back now and listen to the music alone without mm-hmm. the visuals, just, just to really uh, take it in. Yeah. I, yeah. I think it, that's the mark of a good movie is that you don't know that the music is uh, evoking emotion. Yeah. It, it just is. Mm-hmm. Um I watched it. I saw it the other day. I saw it like three days ago. And then I again watched it last night just so high because I wanted that experience of just immersing myself in the movie the first time, especially with the IMAX screen. And then last night I watched it to, um, as an, watching with an analyst's eye. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's when I, that's when I noticed the music and the architecture. That's when I started seeing those things together. Um, and I think this is one of those movies that requires, multiple watching so you can see all the the details that go into it yeah but but so to me this is just to me this is plainly one of the best science fiction movies of recent years and like along with yeah like blade runner 2049 like uh, arrival um annihilation ex machina um and so um you know and I, i guess i just like all the sort of movies that are people sometimes describe as overly cerebral or overly dark yeah. or ser- somber or whatever. Um, I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I so don't I, mind I, cerebral and I don't mind dark at all. I just, and, and again, like I am glad that you had an emotional reaction to this because I, 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 again, I think it's a large part due to the way that I approach movies like this. And so, um, you know, it, it it's, it's uh, probably me more than anything else, and I'm glad that people well, are enjoying this movie. Well, I really I'm just curious. I'm just curious, Rush. Like that body of movies I just mentioned. Do you think of those as the best science fiction movies of recent years, or is there some other like? No, like, I mean, I th- area yeah, I, of science. I think that's pretty. I mean, I'm probably also unable to think of any others at the moment, but um, I, I do think that they're good movies like i think this is a good movie and i'm happy that it can like join that canon of like you know really excellent science fiction movies um and honestly if this you know brings more people to do i i mean there's been a lot of a lot of criticism about the book as a result as well but i'm all happy for that discussion to take place um i mean i know a lot of people are like oh it's an old book why are we you know delving back into this um but i think it's in you know i'm, I'm happy that it's out there um what, what did you say other than his his films? Like the know? Alex, like like the Alex Garland movies. Basically. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I love Ex Machina. I mean, I think that film yeah. is, is amazing. Um, and and completely underrated. So yeah, um, yeah. Um, I, I was because we've been uh, on on other episodes. We've been talking about eighties music uh, movies, eighties right. science fiction movies, and there's such a difference um, tonally. I can't think of serious science fiction movies from the eighties or even really too much from the nineties. Um, even Dune, which is a serious book remade in 84 is, uh, for lack of a better word, goofy. Um, yeah. and all of those science fiction movies, it's like, I think the mindset has changed from science fiction is something for children to this is an adult movie. I, well, I mean, like some of the good movies, like, uh, Terminator or Alien, or I guess that's maybe. I mean, Blade like Runner, 70. the original is certainly. Yes, yeah. that is the yes. Yeah. You're right. That's the it's only one I can exactly. It's an exception. Well, um, I think. Yeah, I mean, um, I think what happened is, and this is just my personal theory, is that 
um, after 9-11, uh, it kind of changed the tone of a lot of yeah. television in general. And I think the the big one was the Battlestar Galactica reboot. Mm-hmm. And that one was like grimdark science fiction. Yeah. And, and I think from then on, you see a lot of science fiction that is A, adult themed and B, really dark. Yeah. Um, and, and I, you don't, before that, like you said, like science fiction, a lot of it just had this sort of goofy kind of tongue in cheek, fun adventure. And, and not a lot of it had like serious, uh, adult themes, um, that I can think of off the top of my head. Maybe yeah. There are exceptions. I, I, I agree with that. It is very, ex- that is very, very true is that I think, you know, as a, as a entertainment consuming culture, after nine eleven, we we experienced a certain um, progeria uh, in in our expectations of the future. It went from you know being um, positive and ex- ex- we have having good expectations of the future to a darkness that we never experienced uh, before, and that that is reflected in media, in in uh, movies and books and that sort of thing. So yeah, I, I agree with that a hundred percent. I guess to, to, does anyone besides Raj have criticisms of this of this new Dune movie? Yes, I do. Even though I loved it, I do have some I criticisms. Have a few, yeah. So uh, so Andrea, what are your? Mine basically um, are some of the performances which I was really surprised about, um, and it's it, these are very small things, and they were only like three points that I was like, I don't believe that. I thought the when he was fighting with Gurney, the the training scene, all of a sudden Josh Brolin goes like over the top, explaining you'd you've never met a, a Harkonnen or Harkonnen as they pronounce it. That, <laughs> yeah. that also threw me off. Was the Harkonnen really? Um, well, it's it's funny. We that's, actually I went back and he, listened. Sorry, that's how I kind of figured. That's how he actually heard yeah. it, uh, pronounced it. Um, Herbert, but yeah, it just kind of but threw it, it's, me it's, off. It's, it, it was funny because I went back and listened to our last Dune panel and Raj actually made a joke about like, oh, maybe it's going to turn out to be pronounced Harkonnen. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I had Raj a little bit of spice, spice that day. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, but, he, you know, in that scene, he goes, you've never met one. They're brutal. And I was like, wow, this is a little over the top. Um, and then yeah. in the exact next scene, we have Batista coming in, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, Raban coming in to see the Baron. And again, he goes over the top with, yeah. you know, why are we doing this? And yeah. I'm like, you know, compared that to his incredibly restrained moving performance at the beginning in of Guardians of the Galaxy. No, <laughs> yeah. No, in um the beginning of um Blade Runner, Blade Runner, Runner which I thought was just an, a, such an affecting scene that back and forth with him and and um Ryan, Kay. yeah, with yeah. Kay, um, that I was so surprised by the over the topness of that performance, that one scene. And then the other thing I have a problem with is that Jessica cries a lot. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I was very upset about that. Um, just, just on a, a level of, can we stop having women crying all the time? But also because she's a Bene Gesserit, the Bene Gesserit live their lives um and learn they they grow up learning complete and utter self control right um you know what's that thing about how you know it, any significantly advanced culture um their si- sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic exactly so that is 
what the what the Bene Gesserits do and what the Mentats do is they have such control that it seems like they have magical powers and it's mm-hmm. not. It is self-control to the point where you can control what the sex of your child is. Um, you can control other people. Yeah. And she completely, in those scenes where she's just crying, she is completely lacking self-control, which is something she g- was trained to do from from childhood. And I yeah. found that unbelievable and somewhat annoying. Can I just make one point about sure. that? I agree with you that I felt that she cried too much, but the scene where Paul is undergoing the Gom Jabbar test, yeah. that I thought was effective because this is her yeah, son that's about to die. And I thought like it was, it would show like this woman who has complete and utter control of herself is about to lose it because her son is about to be killed by her teacher. I felt the same and, way. Yes, and, I, and also because of choices that she made. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so at that point, I was like, oh, that could be effective seeing that her rigid facade break down. But I agree with you that, that like she did. I, I think a lot of that was due to like lack of, of dialogue. Like she didn't have a lot to work with. So, so a lot of yeah. it was just like mm-hmm. the expressions of her face um which, which I thought were were really effective and and like um regarding uh Gurney when Gurney's like the Harkonnens are brutal <laughs> yeah. um um I I've actually really liked that because I I to me it it came off as him showing that he was traumatized by them mm-hmm. that like he was in battle with them he probably lost people um and and again I think this comes down to the fact that like Gurney uh, didn't have a whole lot of scream time. Um, uh, Doofer. Be- Beast Doofer, Raban. Yeah. yeah, they didn't have a lot of screen time. So it was like they needed to establish yeah. them really quickly. And I think, yes, yeah, so th- there were parts like, um, like I, I thought, um, um, what's his name? Uh, sorry, I'm blanking. Stellan Stars- Skarsgård oh. as, as uh, the Baron was just so understated and amazing. Yes. He just creeped yeah. me out. And I was yes. thought, it's going to be like this. No, he just talks softly. And, I, and you're just fucking creeped out by yeah. him. Um, so I was like, that was a great understated performance. But yeah, like Dave Batista, um, I, I mean, I think if he just stood there and, and spoke those lines, it would be less effective. And they, they didn't, again, it, it was like decisions that they had to make because of of time yes, crunches. I agree. But, yeah. it, but I thought at least bring it down from 11, you yes. know, <laughs> just, yeah. it was just a little, a, a tick above what it should have been to me in that. And, and it brought me out of the story a bit yeah, well, a as bit. I'm trying okay. to immerse myself. I would know? guess that was a casualty also of cuts, you know, where they yeah. had established him a little, I mean, apparently I, I read a list somewhere that there was Balasset playing, which, you know, oh, was completely dropped. I know. Yes. I know. I'm exactly. so I wrote that. I, I made that note. I was like, we never got to see Gurney play and sing. I was very upset. <laughs> um, but, but so Matt, what you said, you had a couple of things you wanted to mention. Um, Criticisms? You know, as I was watching, I think I felt that there was a part in the film, I would say maybe two thirds to three quarters of the way through where I just felt we were, we were just playing like, uh, you know, chase the mouse. Right. So it was just, yeah. it was basically like one chase scene, pause, fight scene, mm-hmm. chase scene, pause, yeah. fight scene. And it, there was that point. I, I remember it was like right around the time where they go to that, uh, research station mm-hmm. and, uh, Dr. Kynes shows them like the plants and, the, and, and, um, explains that she wants to make like a green arrakis. And, 
um, I was like, oh, this is cool. And then like immediately um, it was like, oh, another fight scene. The Sardaukar is here. We got to run. We got to fly away. I mean, those action scenes were were amazing. Mm -hmm. Like when when they fly the the thopter into the sandstorm. Yeah. Like, oh, my God. I was just like my heart was stopping. Like that was that was an amazing. So like all those scenes were really great. But I felt that there was a, a moment where I was like a little bit less invested in it because it just went on for so long. And I mm-hmm. wanted, I think I just wanted in those moments, just a beat of a little bit more story. Like, I think, I think they could have done a little bit more explaining what Liet Kynes wanted, you know, like what she was trying to do. And, and I understand like a lot of that's coming and later on, but it, it just felt like, um, it it just felt like yeah, there was no. a lot of action scenes, but but those those action scenes were amazing, and I just want to say these were the best lasers I've ever yeah. seen in any mm-hmm. science fiction movie ever. They felt like real lasers, not like like you know Star Wars bolts of light. Like they they were just like, holy shit, that's how a real laser would work. Actually, I have a I have a question about that because I I thought in the book it was established that they basically don't use lasers because if you hit somebody's shield with a laser, it causes it's a, a nuclear, nuclear explosion. Yeah. 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 And it seems like when um, Duncan was flying the Thopter that he got hit, that the craft was shielded and he got hit by a laser and it just kind of like, I think you they, know, knocked yeah, him off course. they ignored that. Yeah. I also don't know how the shield, I mean, the shields are, as far as I was aware, you know, they, they block most blows, but if you can go slow enough, it can go through the shield. And then at one point in time, like Duncan's just like stabbing people left and right. And I was like, I guess he knows some secret to getting through somebody's shield. I felt like that was a little inconsistent, but whatever. Well, I think they tried to, you know, when when you when they're fighting and you see the blue uh, sparks, that means it's not going in; it's just hitting them. Right. But then you see a lot of red yeah. in there, and 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 it's that's a good visual cue for sure. how it you know how it works. But they, but I agree that they never really explained why they use swords as opposed to, um, you know, laser guns. Uh, and I think they did throw it out the whole um, hitting the h- hitting the shields causing nuclear explosion they did throw it out it was one of the, one of the many babies with the bathwater. <laughs> yeah um but so yeah i mean my really i, I thought everything but I, I agree with um matt that like after um you, you so you have the part where paul has his vision of the future of the like holy war across the galaxy and everything and i, I thought everything up to that was basically perfect and then I agree, once they get to the research station and the stuff that comes after, like, I still thought it was good, but it felt a little bit more, like, conventional, like I'm just watching, like, watching a, a normal movie to me. And, I mean, I think they're stuck, because that is what happens in the book, and I find it a little bit less um, compelling in the book and in the previous movies and TV adaptations and everything as well. But I did, like, and, and like I said, I had this sort of bad experience with the ending in the theater, <laughs> so... But like the, the 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 ending where um you know like Paul kills John Meese and and everything like it it I was that was definitely my least favorite part of the movie because it just felt sort of you know it's like um Stilgar wants to kill Jessica which makes no sense and then John Meese wants to kill Paul which makes no sense and it all just feels kind of contrived and um you know like they're not being very smart these characters who were you would think were you know so adept at survival and being canny and everything and I know it's what happens in the book but. 
um you know what, it was definitely my least favorite part of the movie what i found out about the the james fight is i, I could have sworn and i haven't gone back to check but at the you know he feels so bad about that that he cries or sheds yeah, some tears but that's and then at they the say Oh, is it at the funeral? Okay. Yeah, it's at the I, funeral I, that he cries. Because yeah. I thought, like, they made a big deal. I mean, like, one of the changes they made, which, again, I don't think was a bad one, was introducing Stilgar earlier, right? They don't yeah. really meet Stilgar until much later, and they do the whole spitting thing. And I think that sets up this culture as, as you know, how they care about water right away. And so I was like, oh, man, wouldn't that have been perfect? But I guess if they're going to hold it back, that that's that's fine. Uh, uh, By the way, I thought they nailed that scene because I was like, they have to have the scene where Stilgar spits. Yeah. And and I thought they nailed I was like, oh, my God, that's perfect. I, I thought they did a great job with that. Yeah, they, yeah but they, so how does everyone feel about the end? Because I thought, like, I mean, they're sort of stuck because this is what happens in the book. And it doesn't have a big climax at the halfway through the book, you know. Um, so, so it, it felt a little bit to me like the movie kind of like trailed off a little bit at the end. See, I was Lord of the Rings. Oh, go ahead. I was just, I, I was transfixed by the end in in an emotional way, Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to a big visual way in that he, he has these visions of James, you know, talking about teaching him the way of, uh, of the, of the, of the desert and of the Fremen. And it turns out that it's James is teaching him how to be a, a Fremen and how to live in the desert by, by how cruel it is. And it teaches Paul to be cruel. Um, and I thought for me emotionally, that was very um, satisfying. Yeah. I, I liked the ending. I, I thought that scene in the tent where Paul sees exactly what he, he will be and, and lashes out at his mother. Uh, and then two minutes later, he you know falls into her arms and they cry together because you know yeah. because Leto's dead. I thought that was an incredibly affecting mm-hmm. scene. Uh, for yeah, me. no, that's my favorite part of the book, and that was my favorite yeah. part of this movie. I'm talking about the stuff that happens after that. I was I, a little less. Yeah, I, I taken with. liked it. I I didn't. I I agree with Matt about the whole chasing. And I mean, I honestly I had to go to the bathroom my when I was in the theater, and as soon as they were like in the ornithopter chase i was like i can i can go now and it was fine i didn't really mi- the only thing i missed was what happened to to liette which i found out last night which i knew <laughs> anyway what i think after that sequence though i i you know the fight didn't bother me and and when paul makes his choice you know like jessica's still at that point like get us off world so we can be safe and he's like our path lies in the desert i thought that was a good place to kind of end it because yeah the next part is all him being you know a fremen or or whatever happens there um and i i really i will say i really love you know you see liette kynes with the two hooks and then she Mm -hmm. gets killed and then at the end you see a fremen on a sandworm and i i really like the way that they did that because it's it gives you that hint of like oh man look there's a whole other world coming at you after this and this is just a taste of it which i i really did appreciate yeah. yeah. Um, um, all right. So in terms of like other changes that they made, like the, the changes that they made from the book that kind of jumped out at me. So the part of the beginning where Paul tells Duncan, I saw you dead. That's not in the, is that in the no, book? Cause I don't, not, I don't remember that no. at all. Uh, here's You know what? I, I, it, that's not in the book, but I think it really gives, I, I think you said this, Matt, it gives Duncan an arc that is really affecting because you see that the, the friendship between them you see paul's distress that he has seen duncan dead um and then that 
gives his sacrifice scene, his death scene, so much meaning. When he salutes him with the sword and then closes the door and you know what's going to happen, it, it, it breaks your heart. It broke my heart a little bit. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, yeah, I thought it was great. Yeah. I thought it was a really good change, but I'm just noting that it's a change mm-hmm. from the book. Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, I think the sign of a really good story is that you know what's going to happen, yes. but you you you'll go with them anyway because it's it's a it's a thrill getting there. And I and I think that you know this film does that incredibly. Um, you know, like I, I I had very few nits. I mean, like my my one nit is like. This is extremely minor, but like, you know, when Paul and Jessica flee to the rocks because the, the, the worm is coming and then the worm comes out of it and it, it's like, it's staring at Paul, Paul staring at it. And then it kind of like thumps at him. And then there's a thumper going on yeah, uh, nearby. And he, Paul's like, that's a thumper. It's a thumper. And I was like, there, there was a moment where he's like staring down the worm. The worm's like, I don't know if it has eyes, but it's looking at him. <laughs> and um, I just thought like, there was this kind of reverence of the worm. That yes. I, I don't think Paul would have spoken. I think he would have just stared at it like, oh my God, like, um, what am I seeing? And then the thumper goes off and yeah. the, the, the worm But you goes have off. to explain to the audience that the thumper, like what, otherwise they're not yeah, going to Yeah, so, but they the could thumper. have just done it after the worm goes away. And then he could have okay, said, oh, yeah. it was a thumper that drew yeah. them away. Actually, I don't um, think you even need yeah. to say that. I think you can just say, just the one line, it's a thumper. There are people, you know, yeah. We're not alone. And I think he does sign it to her, right? He signs, we're not alone. When they're in that other Yeah, when they're in that scene. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I kind of agree with you that it was out of place. There was a couple of lines that I thought were out of place that they felt they needed to hit. Um, that was one of them. Um, but I also thought that scene where the worm comes out and, you know, it, it, there's there's a problem of, of it being a little goofy or weird or, you know, that that – vagina tendentatis kind of thing mm. um but they really make it so uh massive and awe-inspiring that you can understand why the fremen worship it as a god um yeah that scene really brought that home for me and they don't even really get to like the real reason they worship it because it's like the source of the yeah. of the spice obviously and then and then also like the water of life which enables them to you know, yeah, have these transcendent experiences. Um, yeah, it, I'm I'm really excited for the for the next movie because mm-hmm. um, I I just think it's there's so many cool things that happen in part two. Yeah, um, and and then I just want to watch them all together. Yeah, <laughs> could I also just ask you? So in the scene where um the the Harkonnen henchmen are disposing of of Paul and Jessica. I don't remember Paul. I th- the way I remember it was that like Jessica uses the voice on the soldiers, but I don't remember Paul using. No, the she's voice no, on the she's soldiers. gagged. So because she, they yes. know she can use the voice, and so you know it's it it plays out slightly differently. But you know Paul has to be the one to tell them to remove the gag. But there yeah. is a deaf person, if I I believe, yes, on on yeah. the the th- doctor. Yeah. Um, Dave, can I just mention? So it's, wait, so it's so it's basically the same as yeah. It is pretty similar, okay. except yeah. she doesn't okay. in in. The, there's more in this movie of her telling him he needs to work on it a bit more, if, yeah. if I recall correctly, yeah. because I think, which is smart. You don't want him to come off from the beginning as like, he can do everything. Like he has to kind of learn. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to say, Dave, one of the changes that I thought was really 
what was worthwhile was what they left out was the whole plot about, you know, Thufur suspecting Jessica as the traitor yeah. because we didn't need that in, in this movie. And I'm glad that they cut that because it, it, it just would have, I think, distracted from what they were trying to do. And, you know, there's some stuff about how they handle women in the book that they avoided that I think, I think was, was a positive in, in the movie. So. Yeah. Um, I guess what do, I, I guess sort of one notable change that they made is that the word jihad doesn't appear yeah. in this movie. And also um, I thought they, they used a lot more Arabic than was in the book. Did, did the words, did the name Lisan Al-Ghib appear in the, in the book? book? Yeah, that is in the book. Yeah. All right. So I have a question. When the Fremen are speaking to each other in their own language, is is that Arabic or, or uh, is it a made up language? Because I don't speak Arabic. I don't. Yeah, I don't either, but it the, certainly sounded like it. The subtitles yeah. said it was, was it Chakba or something? Their, their language from the, from the, the, ba- the, the battle book. Language, so I don't but, know what that's based on here. Yeah. Yeah, because like, wasn't there a point too where um, um, Doctor Yue is speaking to? He's speaking Mandarin, I believe. Yeah, Mandarin, yes. right? Yeah. To, to Paul, and so I, it just made me wonder if maybe the the Fremen were speaking Arabic. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't sure if but, if that was. But by the way, I don't know if if you guys experienced this, but it both even at home. Um, there are certain segments where to me, the dialogue was garbled. Like, you know, when Jessica's mm-hmm. saying the litany against fear yeah. in the beginning, yeah. I was like, this is one of the most recognizable yeah. segments from Dune. And it was very hard to understand what she was saying. And then in the tent, what Paul was saying, like I had to turn on the subtitles last night just to see exactly what he was saying um, because it felt a little garbled to me. And, and that stuff you know, it, it's probably technical stuff or whatever, but I was like, oh man, I, I wanted to hear that a lot more clearly, especially when he's talking about them having the crusade and his father's name and his name and rivers of blood or whatever he says. Yeah. I think that has a lot to do with the the score. Mm. Uh, so I think that the Hans Zimmer is, you know, very bass heavy and um, probably that, depending on your sound system, you might have to adjust the EQ to, mm-hmm. to get the, the ranges correct. I, in the theater, I don't think I had a problem, although I did feel that um, when Jessica was reciting the litany against fear, she did, she was c- kind of sub vocalizing it a little bit. I, wa- I wanted it to be like, you know, yeah. Well, in both those scenes, they're kind of freaking out, killer. like, right. you know, yeah. so they're, they're not, you know, like delivering it in a like, actor kind of or you know in a like stage actor kind of way you know it's like a emotionally overwrought kind of way and and i mean this is also a function of me knowing what he's saying already um because i know what he feels in that scene and i know what he's saying so yeah it was a little too quiet and a little garbled but i think for them they felt the performance was more important than the information being uh, um, given to the audience, you know? Um, I just want to also say, and um, is it Zendaya or Zendaya? Zendaya. 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 I want to say Zendaya's performance. um, Like, obviously she's only in it for like a couple seconds, but when, when Shani's looking at Paul for the first time, and then she kind of sees him and she's like extremely skeptical of him. And then she sees him, you know, best, uh, Jamis. Yeah. And then she looks at him again, like 
oh my God, I completely underestimated you. Like I thought that performance was amazing. Like she didn't really even say anything. It was just like her expression. And I'm really excited to see her as like a fully fleshed out character in the, in the next. Yeah. Cause, cause I, I, I was like, wow. Like, like she just expressed so much with just, just her body language. It was it's kind of astounding. I th- I thought it was an interesting choice to have her voiceover introduce mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning what was going on as opposed to Irulan, um, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I mean, and this is what another thing that was sacrificed from the book is that it's all, um, uh, it starts out with uh, excerpts it's like from told in retrospect, it, yeah, and yeah. it's from from Irulan's perspective. Um, it's Irulan's, you know talking about it it's her record of what happened yeah. um which you know what I, I i can understand why they jettisoned that that's fine Irland's that's the only real um uh, a- appearance of Irland in the book other well, than they the also end. they also left out the emperor completely yes in this yep. and 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 um you know afterwards my wife said oh I thought the Baron was the emperor. I said, no, no. no. I said the emperor yeah. was left out. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, my, I, I, went, I went to see this with my girlfriend who had no prior exposure to Dune whatsoever. And she was also confused about whether the Baron was the emperor or not. So well, I, I was, see if you have. No, no. I, yeah, I, I agree. And I, I, I was the scene where you see the Ben and Jesuit or, or Helen, you know, mother Helen guy talking about how they're, getting the you know the the emperor is in on what's going on the only people present in that are her the baron and peter peter de vries there should have been somebody from the space guild there there should have been the emperor there just so we can un- really understand that this it is was a conspiracy a yes that they made and and i trust the director to to have a reason for that yeah i i i, I it might just it was be a conspicuous absence. simplicity. I mean, like in the books, yes, you know, simplicity. they go to yeah. a, a place of showing how the Sardaukar are hidden under uh, uh, Harkonnen livery, basically, mm-hmm. so that they, they sneak them in. And this one, they're just there. I think it's because, and they even cover it by saying, you know, no one's going to know they were even there because yeah. they're just going to find dead Atreides everywhere. Um, and I think that that makes sense. Just so, so visually, you can see in the film, like, oh, these are the badass Sardaukar coming in yeah. and like, you know, dropping down on anti-grav things, which I thought was really cool because yeah, we too. see that with the Baron and then like killing people and their language, whatever they were speaking in that one scene, like, I love that. Um, I wish there was more of that. That reminded me of the Lynch thing where they're, you know, the guild guy is talking through that like translator. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. That's and cool. also the, the thing where the, the Sardaukar are getting their like sacraments. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and oh, God, they're yeah. walking through and like, you know, putting the blood on, yeah. their, on their forehead and then like the, the voice of the guy in the background. Yeah. Just, like that was just so fucking well, creepy. And you see and like cool. the rows of people who are like crucified. Yeah. Yeah. They oh. were just using crucified blood and, and um, just like really haunting. And, and, you know, I, th- I thought the film was like amazing at how quickly it was able to establish that, you know, these are, these are just brutal, people you know you didn't need josh brolin to yeah <laughs> although, although those are those are the uh Sardaukar, different group yeah. but uh but you know just yeah like the the scenes i i thought the 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 change of the uh 
the changing of hands when the emperor's uh, emissary comes and and uh, Leto has to has to uh, mark the seal with his ring, and then they're they're all in you know uh, regalia, you know, and and just um, that it was just so beautiful. Yeah. Uh, uh, the the film and and um, it's quite quite amazing. I thought Did the that ring- I- Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. No, I was going to say, I thought the ring thing, I mean, that's, that is, you know, I feel like that scene, which isn't, I don't think in the book is just sets up this world very well. And him using the ring because that ring later comes to Paul and in the book, it's just like, oh, it's just ducal signet ring, but it, it's now linked symbolically, you know, with this big moment, which I thought was a really smart choice. Yeah. Okay, so I just have a couple of things. So I, because I, I definitely had the sense watching the movie that Paul was better developed and more active than he was in the book. But it might just be that I don't remember all the stuff that's in the book. But like the part where he, um, during the crawler evacuation, yeah. where he gets sort of like um, yeah. uh, spice swept over him and he has these visions and almost dies. Is that in the book? Because no. I, no. I don't remember that. No. no. That was my biggest problem with, uh, I think the only scene that I actually felt was not well orchestrated I know why he like. I feel like I can see why Denis Villeneuve chose all of these moments, and they make sense from a storytelling perspective, yeah. um, because he needs to. So Paul doesn't get exposed to Spice until later in the books, and he doesn't know that his mother is pregnant until later in the books. Yeah. But to have a Paul have this experience in the in this movie, because you know a lot of that stuff happens in the second movie, and to give him to give the audience the idea of him awakening. They wanted to expose him to the spice a lot earlier. But my issue there is that, one, it makes him look stupid by just wandering yes. out and then collapsing. And two, there's no way that that after every other thing in the film where they're telling him, you know, that he's the future and every, he's surrounded by guards and whatever, that they would just let him run off and just stay out there without at least having, you know, Gurney Halleck next yeah. to him the whole time. I think they wouldn't have even sent him out at all. Um, but they needed to have that moment. No, didn't, didn't his father tell him to stay in the back of the thopter? Yeah. And he went out, but I, uh, yes. Yeah. And he went out on his own. Uh, th- he did it because he wanted to, but yeah. I understand. Uh, but I, I agree with, with uh, Raj that, that it, he did. They frequently do this because they need to have a character do something in order. It was, it was an act serving the story as opposed to, um, yeah. what would really happen. I, I, it was a very stupid thing to do. And, you know, a 16 year old will do stupid shit. Um, but the fact that he didn't have somebody with him at all times in this incredibly dangerous situation does not ring true. Yeah. I mean, the other thing though, is that I, I saw that moment as being extremely chaotic and mm-hmm. everybody was sort of like, uh, you know, um, improvising at the last second and maybe had lost track of Paul. And then I think Paul became so kind of, you know, mesmerized by, you know, the spice. Like he, he suddenly for the first time was like really around a lot of spice and started to hallucinate. So I, I could kind of see him wandering off and then losing track of him. And his father does scold him later for, for that. But yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, in real life, he probably would have a full-time guard or something, but... Uh, 
And then it leads to Dr. Yue basically explaining to us, you know, yeah. oh, spice has psychoactive properties and yes. we know Paul's been having dreams. So it sets off that whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, He's like, it wasn't an allergic reaction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know? It kind of like kind of makes sense to me, like, cause you need another scene with Dr. Yue, you know, cause he Although, needs to be set up that he exists. I wish and- that they would have just at, at least had him talk to Jessica at least once about his wife and what her Bene Gesserit background was and just to yeah. set up his betrayal because his betrayal comes out of nowhere. Yes, um, I agree. And and he explains it a little bit, but it I don't I feel like it doesn't hurt as much as it does in the story because you you know, you sort of understand how I mean everyone in this in the book and in this alt story is manipulated. And so like he's one of the people stuck in these manipulations. Yeah. Um, so. And they don't, they don't explain that the doctors have imperial conditioning. Right. Exactly. That is supposed, that's why they trust him a hundred percent because he's supposed to be conditioned not to betray right. who he's serving. Um, and that doesn't come across either. And, and the only thing that made him betray was the right. betray and was the love for he had for his wife right. to, and, and that was a really powerful motivator. And like, yeah, like, like it, it just came really kind of late and, like, oh, I'll get my wife back. And like, yeah. of course, you're not going to get your wife back. Like, it just seemed obvious at that moment. And it just yeah. made him seem really stupid. Yes. But Rather I felt that than, about the book, yeah. too. Like, yeah. did you honestly think they were going to? I think he knows. Yeah. I think he basically yeah. sets up his revenge with the tooth thing. Although the tooth was handled yeah. so much better in this one. Yes. Um, I think yep. as well. But I, th- I, I think that's part of my issue is that, like, even Dr. Yue gets more time than Duncan, I'm not Duncan. Duncan gets a lot of time. Uh, then Gurney and Thufer, uh, and even Peter doesn't really get, or Piter, however no. you want to say his name, doesn't really get a lot of of time. No. I mean, again, I'm glad they cut out the fact, you know, his whole like I get to have Jessica. I, I didn't need yeah. to have that in this movie, but I just and just because I love those characters, like I wish they had had more time. And I also, I mean, I, maybe this is. Some people are going to say that this is, you know, looking too much at things, I suppose. But it was like the one Asian guy in the movie gets to be the traitor. Yeah, I agree. Off to me. (laughs) I agree with that. But (laughs) it did seem to me pretty clear from the movie, though, that he didn't expect to live because he like obviously once the Duke dies, they're going to figure out that he was the one who put the tooth, the poison tooth and everything. So I think his motive seemed to me just to get his wife to stop being tortured. Mm-hmm. And then that was really all he was hoping to accomplish. Can I, yeah. can I ask a question? So he shuts off the shield. We know he says he turns off the comms. Um, but then it just seems like the whole place is deserted at night and like everyone's caught off guard, but I'm like, they had to have more guards, guards and things. Everyone runs out without armor on. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense because we've seen them strutting about in their armor. Like even if it takes you two extra seconds, maybe put on your armor. Maybe yeah. I guess if you have shields, you don't need it. But um, it just seemed like not just, the royal family, obviously, I expect they took, you know, sleeping pills and the Duke gets caught. But like, you know, none of the other troops seem to be at their stations and they are all caught off guard, which seemed odd. Like, there, I, I will say this, there's a and, and again, I, these are nitpicks. I, I don't really think it hurts the movie overall. But there are a lot of places in the film where I feel like they keep telling us these things. And then when they show us what happens, it's not those things that they keep telling us are, are like, you know, you can't last very long out in, in, you know, the heat of the desert without coverings. And then they're walking around without still suits on yeah, and they're fine. Literally in pajamas. Yeah. <laughs> and so I feel like there's a few moments like that where it's like, again, trying to pack a lot of information to a small thing. And I'm glad that they talk about the desert a lot because I felt like that's lost in some of the other adaptations. But, um, 
but yeah, just little things like that. Yeah. Didn't, didn't I mean, in, I guess in the book, didn't UA leave them still suits? Not just, a, I, I believe I, so. I was, yeah. 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 But I don't they, know why they, that was changed because I don't think it would have changed anything storytelling. Because wise. I don't I think they go to Kimes's uh, that they ecological don't, right. station until later, so they they swapped around that whole thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, Duncan doesn't smuggle them out. I like doesn't pick no. them up either. So, no. but again, you know, I feel like that stuff didn't really hurt anything by switching it around. Um, I did like the tent, you know, them drinking the water from the tent and him saying like sweat and tears. Like, like I yeah. I like that stuff quite a bit. Um, I think also with the uh, with the attack that you can just sort of infer that there are other soldiers who are all armored up and everything, and we don't see them because yeah. we just see the ones who are part of like um, Gurney Hollick's like dorm, basically yeah. that he runs out with in the middle of the night. I mean, I I would have cut you know uh, Duncan's like flight out of there because. I think yeah. you could just show him leaving. I didn't need to see like this big, like, you know, shootout thing, like Matt had said before. But again, Duncan is one of the few secondary characters who does have an arc in this. So at least yeah. they, they set him up. Yeah. And, and what I've, I, I just want to take a minute to talk about how the attack scene, how visually beautiful it is. Oh, yeah. 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 It's just stunning to watch that. It's such an incredible sequence in that film of not just emotional watching people you know die and knowing that all of them are dying um but just the the explosions and i don't not a big explosion you know shit blows right. up fan um but it was Me just too. visually gorgeous it, it it almost felt like they had looked uh you know at, at footage from real battles because like just the, the way some of the the missiles were coming oh, down yeah. and and you know with like the tracer fire and and then like the explosions of the ships and stuff that were on the ground, they didn't look necessarily like you do. You see in a lot of science fiction movies where it's like this great giant explosion. It was just like little parts of yeah. them were exploding. Yeah. They just and co- I was like, they well, collapsed. That, they of. sort of collapsed. I'm like, that seems more real to me than these like giant explosions. And um, yeah, it just, it just felt very real. And, and just, um, you know, when, when Gurney looks in the sky and he's like, get everything you have in the air. And they see, they look up to the, the guild spaceship and all the, yeah. all the crafts coming yeah. down. I was like, my God, that just, that was so yeah. amazing. Yeah. And like, given how much like science, like space opera stuff and there was, ne- there was never any like distracting CGI in this, no. you know, like so many movies yeah. like this, it's just like this big, like blurry mess of CGI for minutes at a time. And like everything in this just looked real. Like yeah. every, and, there was the a, Sorry, go ahead, Andrew. No, go ahead. You you make your point. Sorry. No, I was just going to say that there were a lot of ship shots in this thing. Like, I mean, yeah. like they're landing and taking off. But I think it it you know, like there was a point at which I was like, do we need all of these? But they're really stunning the way they handle it. And I mean, you know, I was thinking back to Arrival, and that must be like he's just really good at nailing those visuals. Yeah. yeah. Uh, go ahead, Andrew. Yeah. Well, yeah, I agree with that. That visually, the the visual compositions of all his shots are just so stunning. Um you can't help but you know feel awe at these ships it's just amazing um uh, back to the the battle scenes and the and the construction of those scenes and the the sequences you know the last i don't know 20 something years i think probably since um um saving private ryan the look of battle scenes in movies has changed so much it went from you know watching things you know ships blow each other up in very long scenes to that quick cut um, to give you people the feeling of the chaos of battle. Um, 
this goes back to it, it harkens back to the old way of shooting a battle scene, which is long shots of things, you know, fire blossoming. It 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 makes it less cut, 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 chaos, 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 and lets you savor the horror of battle and death. Um, I think it's just he made a visual choice not to do that, mm. you know, that that dark night cut, cut, cut. The, the battle scene, the beginning battle scene in, in uh, Saving Private Ryan, he moves away from that. And, and I thought that was really visually beautiful and a really interesting yeah. choice. Can I ask Matt I a also, question? Sorry, sorry. You go, Matt. No, ask me a question. No, I was just going to say that it was just, I was going to geek out about the thopters. I thought yeah. they were amazing. Yeah. Yes. They were amazing. The, uh, the dragonfly, like the way yes. they, they fly. And, and I think that's, you know, probably closest to the way they were described in the book. And, and um, just the way they fly and like, you know, I love dragonflies. They're like yeah. the coolest yeah. insect. And just, I was like, yes, that's that's amazing. But yeah. what, what were you going to ask me? Uh, I agree with everything you said about the or- ornithopters. I felt like they were they were my favorite. Um, uh, so was it me or did the complex on Arrakis like evoke the the um, the arcology in Blade Runner? Right? Like, wasn't it like yes. very similar? Like the so yeah so. Um, there was a moment where we're flying over Arakeen, um, you know, the city yeah. on Arrakis, and there's music playing and there's this flyover. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I'd recently rewatched Blade Runner 2049, and there's a scene where Kay, it's at the beginning where he's flying back into LA and the, st- the snowstorm's coming in. And the music playing and the, the, the angle of the camera looking down over the city was it incredibly similar? Yeah. And I was like, oh, yes, because I forgot who told me. Uh, it might have been you, Andrea. You, you you said that you it didn't sound like anything else Hans Zimmer had ever yeah. done before. Yeah. And and I agree with you 100 percent, except that scene. I was like, oh, yes, this this reminds me of Blade Runner. Like I got a very um, visceral sense of of the the scene. If, if you go back and rewatch, it's in like the first 20 minutes of Blade Runner when Kay is flying back to the uh, LAPD and he's looking down at the city and you have that kind of like haunting, airy music playing. It was very, very similar to the the scene where we're flying over uh, Arakeen for the first time. Is that is that what you meant, Rock? Yeah, exactly. I mean, just uh, the there was just an aesthetic to it that felt, you know, very similar. So, well, that was the scene I was, I, I was thinking of when I said it was like Egyptian brutalist. Mm. Cause that, yeah, when yeah. you see those buildings, they look like step pyramids, Yeah, you know, yeah. And- well, they had to survive the harsh climate of Arrakis. Yeah. And there was a study I read, uh, years ago, um, you know, an Egyptologist can correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, the pyramid is actually uh, the one shape or the pyramid of the ziggurat is the, is the one shape most resistant to erosion. Mm-hmm. And that's why the um, Egyptians decided to use that um, for, for, you know, uh, their pharaohs, et cetera. So, to so, live forever. Uh, yeah. Yes. So, so. And they were uh, right. <laughs> yeah. So, so you could uh, see a lot of that you know, Egyptian style uh, architecture in, in the film in terms of like the ziggurat like shape of all the buildings. Yeah. Right. Could I also just ask you guys, so that, so when um, Paul's in the tent where he's having his vision of the future he, and he, he yells at his mom and he says, get off me. You did this to me. You Bene Gesserit made me a freak. Mm-hmm. 
which I thought was really good. But I don't remember that line from the book. Does he I, say that I, I or anything like that? In the I, I don't think he, he says freak, but he's angry. I thought I he's. Yeah. I thought he calls himself a freak in the books. Um, I mean, I, I have. Really? It's been a while since I was. Obviously, we all read it, but um, yeah, I, I feel like he's his whole awakening. He starts to, you know. I mean, I, I think the movie does a really good job of showing that even when you know she's like when he learns he might be the chosen one, he's like, yeah, but you know, like he feels all set this, his whole life has been set up and he's on this course that really is not of his choosing, which yeah. I think is handled really well. And, and then and you also, know, the vision and yeah, the, carries that through. I, and I also felt like they really brought out his reset, how he feels about his mother doing this to him, right. the betrayal, um, which I thought was really affecting and really true to the character more and, than, and, you know, a simple teenager just like yes. you know like mom you know you you did this to me or whatever i thought yeah. it was like that moment i think is one of the most real moments in, in the and, whole film and also when they're outside after uh mother helen Gaim leaves in the ship and they they look at each other through the mist mm. and they have the conversation about you know when he realizes what she has done um is also really painful yeah that that was so i i love that scene when that when they're outside in the mist and yeah. the, in like the rain and i also want to say like they had the uh what did they call them in the book the glow globes the the, the oh, lights yeah. that followed them yeah. around those are cool yeah that's and cool. those were so cool and it was just like yeah they were just there like like that's a technology that's just there they didn't explain it they didn't yeah. have to explain it and and just the the lighting in that scene where they're in the mist and and uh you know, the ship leaves and she's getting blown about by the, the rain and the wind. And then she turns around and Paul's there. It just, wow. Like, yeah, I got Although the chills. I, I, I guess one of my favorite parts of the book was that after, after that scene in the tent, I don't remember if it's in dialogue or if you're in her head or whatever, but I, I remember very distinctly that she's afraid of him now. Mm. Yeah. She always yes. sort of imagined that she would be able to control him. And now she's like, shit, I, I can't I, yeah. control him and I'm afraid yeah. of him now. Yeah. yeah. And I felt like they maybe could have hit that a little yeah. harder in the movie because I didn't. I don't know if I felt that come through. So yeah, so I don't. Much. I didn't feel the fear, but I did feel that you see her still trying to control him, and him, be, you know, like it's it's a it's a coming of age story too. So him becoming a man, not only is assuming his his father's ro you know role as duke, but also what he has to be and breaking away from his mother's control. Cause she's, you know, she says we have to get off world and he, he cuts her off and says, no, our path is through the desert yeah. and she mm -hmm. just has to accept it. But then, and I want to bring this up. If I, I, I don't want to forget this, there's a scene or a shot right near the end where he and Chani are looking at each other. And then he looks at uh, his mother and she knows he's been having these dreams she has figured out that this is the girl that he's been dreaming about. Mm -hmm. And she kind of smile. They smile at each other a little. And then Paul walks off. And then you see this very subtle change in Jessica's face from, you know, happy or, or at least being happy with him. And then her face changes to stony thinking. And, and there's, you know, the implication of she doesn't want him with her, you know? Yeah, I, I didn't catch that. I, I need to rewatch yeah, it. Either. 
It's but very I, subtle. It's very subtle. There's another moment, you know, when they finally get on the rocks and they, they're like, okay, I guess now we can put on the still suits, um, where she gives him a strange look. Yes. And, and we, you know, I, I saw it with my partner, Elizabeth, and, and she was like unsure what that meant. And at first I was too, but watching it again last night, it's really interestingly like aligned with the fact that they're about to change in front of one another. And obviously she's his mother, I'm sure, you know, and, and in this culture, I don't think maybe them being naked in front of one another is a big deal, but I feel like in that moment, she's like, oh man, he is a man now. Like he, Mm -hmm. this, our relationship has changed. It's not just the mother and the boy. It's like, he's becoming something else. And I think that strangeness is what, what occurs right there. And, and they literally turn their back. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and also that scene where he takes his shirt off and you see him look like a skinny boy. Yeah. And it's also this kind of, he's not that anymore. He is going to be something else that I can't be a part of or control. And I think she realizes it there. I think that's really interesting. I didn't really catch that on, on what first viewing, but um Yeah. I, I think this is definitely a movie you want to watch multiple yeah. times because there are some of these subtleties to the performances. Um, all right, cool. So we're we're running a little short on time. Um, so last time I said that I thought that this the, the Bene Gesserit TV show had been axed, but it sounds like it's still going on. Mm-hmm. Um, John Spates, who was one of the screenwriters on this movie, had been the showrunner, and he's he's left, it sounds like, but then they have a new showrunner, but it sounds like it's still moving ahead. Uh, just a few days ago, they were doing. Someone did an interview with um, Rebecca Ferguson. Yeah. is that her name? Yeah. And um, and she said like, "Hey, if they just just to, just to let you know, I don't have any work lined up for next fall. Mm-hmm. So uh, <laughs> you know, if they're looking for uh, if they're looking for me in the Benny Jesseret TV show, you know, just just drop in a hint there. Is it supposed so to? I don't know. Is it supposed to be in the same time period? It's a prequel, right? That's what I thought. I guess as a child, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, depending on how how. You know, if it were only set like 10 years yeah. or something or 20 right. years before the movie, she could still play the same character, yeah. I guess. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, so just, I just want to correct the record <laughs> if anyone if anyone like lost all hope because I said it was it was done. That's latest info seems to be that it's that actually be, that's cool. really cool. Yeah. yeah. Like like I always felt that um, and I, I believe that. There's stories about them in the Kevin J. Anderson, yeah. Brian Herbert books, but I haven't read them. But I, I always felt that um, that there's so much story there with the, yeah. the Bene Gesserit and and the manipulation behind the scenes and the, and their their powers and how they uh, develop them and and that I, I just think that this, I mean, you could pretty much take any little corner of the Dune universe and make a series oh, out absolutely. of it. There's so much there, but I think that Bene Gesserit is a great choice. Yeah. yeah. I'm really, really interested in seeing that also because it's, it's showing us the power of women in this society, which yeah. Yeah. doesn't really come across much in the books and in the movie. Oh, and one thing I thought was really fascinating about this was, you know, they mentioned, so in the book, Jessica has been, told to just bear daughters and she mm-hmm. she breaks against that and bears the son paul who becomes the quitsats haderach but um in the books it's very clear that it you know the quitsats haderach is is supposed to be a man the first man to get the power yeah. that all these women have and in this one the the reverend mother uh uh gaius mohayim i guess uh, yes she she says you know it's a pity 
it it, it was a boy which and that one line led me to believe that they kind of dropped that whole has to be yeah. a man thing and it just like it just ended up by accident that it was this boy when it could have been a woman having this power and i think that that's so much better than than what was set up in the book so i really enjoyed that well, I think also it was trying to bring more women or the, the stories of women into it. Yeah. You know, just making Liette Kynes a woman, mm-hmm. I thought was a great choice. Yeah. Um, I'm really happy they did that. So that's, you know, those are two changes. Yeah, I can uh, see. Um, because they, they, that's the sort of thing, you know, these books that were written in the pre- 60s. Yeah, this was written in the 60s, but there's books, like, let's say from the 80s back up to the eighties where women had very small roles um, in all of them. And I think, you know, it, they did it in Lord of the Rings too, where they made Arwen um, mm. more of an active character. Cause the only real active characters in Lord of the Rings that are women are um, Eowyn and um, uh, the uh, Galadriel. Galadriel. Thank you. Um, and they made Arwen more of an active, a completely active character. And I, I thought that was a really, those are really good choices to change the, uh, I I don't want to use, it's not the word misogyny, but just the absence of women um, up till a certain point in science fiction and also fantasy. I also just want to say, speaking of Kevin J. Anderson, that, you know, I think he was involved in this movie. Actually, I was going to bring this Um, up. I I always read the credits. He is credited as a special consultant uh, in the credits. Yeah. So I think it's just cool that, um, you know, like I watched interviews with Denis Villeneuve where he said, you know, he read Dune when he was 14. It was his lifelong dream to adapt it into a movie. And at any time he um, wasn't sure what direction to go. And it was always just like, go back to the book, go back to the books. Yeah. What does it say in the book? We're doing that. And it's just so nice to have um, science fiction movies made by people who actually respect the source material yes. and mm-hmm. know, know it. Mm-hmm. You know, in contrast to like, you know, yeah, like going back to the 80s or whatever, where so often they would take a book and the director would just be like, oh, I have so many better ideas than this stupid book. Yeah. And they would change everything. And, you know, it's just nice to have like books make it to the screen in a respectful, mostly, um, you know, faithful kind of way. And, and it, yeah. it's about fans, uh, lovers of the books and lovers of the stories making it, um, which which um, makes a real true story as opposed to just some rando uh, making a goofball movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, but we're, we're pretty much out of time, so let's start getting into some final thoughts here. So, Raj, final thoughts on, on this movie? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm glad it exists, and I'm glad it's bringing attention to the books. And I, I you know, I probably... I wasn't sure I would go back to it. I've seen it twice now. I probably will go back to it again and, and watch it. And I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with part two, although it'll probably be a little while before that happens. Um, So, you know, and I have, I I could probably give you a list of nits, but I'm really, I, I I will say this. I'm not interested in like, you know, raining on the parade of this movie. I'm, I am really glad that it's out there and I'm glad that you guys enjoyed it. And so, uh, so yeah, thanks for letting me talk about it. (laughs) Uh, Matt, final thoughts. Uh, I, I loved it. Um, every moment of it. I, I mean, it, I, I thought this was amazing. This was the, the Dune film that, um, that I've wanted for so long. Um, I just, I was totally enthralled from start to finish. I am super excited to, uh, see these cut scenes, yeah, that, that, yeah. you know, that, that, that we talked about. Um, uh, I didn't know that the banquet scene existed, so that would be cool. Cause that's one of my favorite scenes. In that, yes, in that me book. too. Um, and the sequel, I'm, I'm excited. It's a long time to wait, but, uh, we've waited 
long enough for this one, so I can wait another <laughs> year or so. Yeah, hopefully the next one won't be delayed like a, a right. year. Well, it's going to take two. them quite a while to to make it. They haven't even made it. They usually, yeah. you know, shoot these movies simultaneously. So yeah. it's kind of. I was shocked. I didn't know it was going to be a, such a long wait. I didn't know they hadn't shot it yet. So well, and it's a pretty. I mean, they're planning to release it in 2023, which is a, a pretty compressed yes time frame yeah. to yeah, make very. the second movie. So, I mean, hopefully that doesn't um, cause any problems. Um, but I'll just say, I mean, that, you know, I, I never really appreciated until the pandemic. I always just assumed that there would be, oh, like every month, every two months or three months, there'll be some big blockbuster science fiction movie that people are excited about coming out that we can talk about. And there really haven't been for the last two years because of the pandemic. Um, and it's I, I never really appreciated how how much of a loss that would feel to me and how how difficult honestly it would make it doing a weekly science fiction podcast <laughs> when there aren't these big movies coming out you know regularly that people are all excited about and want to talk about and hear about and so uh, I just want to say that it's like you know I, I appreciate all the more how precarious yeah Hollywood actually is you know it seems so powerful and, and everything but it could all go away if people don't watch these movies and, you know, go to theaters and, and so on. So I, I just want to say like, yeah, how, how much this, the, the newfound appreciation I have for, for directors like Denis Villeneuve and, and movies like this and, and that I just hope everyone, you know, does what they can to support them if you want yeah. things like this to keep existing. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, Andrea, final thought? Um, I mean, I, I'm pretty, I, I'm pretty sure I said most of this is, might be just a recap of everything I've said, but yeah, I thought it it's a beautiful, as I said, as I felt about Blade Runner 2049, this movie is a, is a, a work of art, um, visually and storytelling wise. Uh, and, and I feel like I'm finally being treated as an adult who enjoys science fiction as opposed to, uh, watching child, childish adventures stories. Um, this is gravitas. It has, and it, and it, it respects the soul of the book, um, which is dark and painful. And, you know, uh, I think as a, as a culture and as a, we are sort of evolving that way, you know, what with, as Matt brought up 9-11 and also now this last, the pandemic of not everything is a bright, fun adventure. Um, and I respect his artistry, Denny Villeneuve, I, he is an artist and he has made an art film of science fiction. And I never said, I never thought I'd say this, but I love, this has made me love art films. Um, I've always hated them. <laughs> um, so this is exactly what I was hoping for in respect to what the book meant to me um, when I was four, you know, 12, 13, 14. Yeah, yeah, it's such a beautiful looking film and so much to think about and talk about in terms of politics and, yeah. and choices that people make and, you know, and all that stuff. So, yeah, go see it. If you haven't seen it, go see it because, uh, you know, we definitely want more movies like this to exist yeah. so that we can talk about them in upcoming episodes of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> um, but so we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Andrea Kale, Matthew Kressel and Rajan Khanna. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thanks. Dave. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Andrea Kale, Matthew Kressel, and Rajan Khanna for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue, 
please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.